All right. Hello, Mr. Ginsburg. Hello. Glad uh, to be thank here. You. Yeah, thanks for coming on the Edlo podcast. Really excited about this. You, um, you are uh, the vice president of the Forever Family Foundation, which is a foundation specifically that covers afterlife science, right? Yeah, uh, we, um, we're interested in both helping the bereaved through information um, and um, it's kind of a convergence, convergence of science and spirituality together. So we're, we're interested when we say afterlife science, any phenomena that we think is evidential that shows that our consciousness can survive a physical death. And you've been at this for a long time now, 20 years. Yeah, we started the foundation in 2003, so it's, yeah, 20 years now. Wow. How does that feel? <laughs> well, you know, um, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I, I would laugh at it, saying, you know, these guys, this guy's just deluding himself because I was a left brain, you know, uh, thinker. I, I didn't believe in life after death. I thought it was preposterous. It was just wishful thinking. <laughs> And my life has obviously uh, gone in a different direction mm. during these 20 years. Yeah. Wow. So um, now a little bit about your background. Um, uh, before this, would you have considered yourself agnostic? Would you consider yourself atheist? What would you? No, I mean, I, you know, I was, um, I, I, you know, I believed in, in, I wasn't religious, but I would go to, services once in a while i grew up in the jewish faith and you know mm -hmm. i went, went to to hebrew school and, and uh, i never gave much thought to it i mean to me you know sitting in a temple and reading something in a language that i couldn't understand wasn't very interesting to me um so i never had this deep sense or this knowing um i mean i think like a lot of people i hope that there was an afterlife but it wasn't based on any any logical proof, you know. I think if you if you took a survey among the general public and you said how many people believe in an afterlife, you'd f probably find around eighty percent of people would say yes. But what they're really saying is that they hope there is, you know, and that that can change from hope to belief to knowing, and you could arrive at that knowing stage in various routes. Yeah, that's that's interesting. My my father, a little bit of background about me. My father grew up Jewish. Bar mitzvahed, uh, we and uh, my mother uh, is Mormon, so we have quite the eclectic religious group. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, yeah, we would we would celebrate Hanukkah, Christmas, Passover, Easter, everything. My uncle and my aunt are still uh, my my dad's brother and sister are still Jewish. My dad converted to being Mormon, which is a huge conversion, and it took lots of years for him to do that. But um, but yeah, it, it's interesting. Does that um, do you still? Uh, so would you consider yourself? I know my my dad, for example, for a lot of, a lot of years, he was just it was more tradition than religion. The Jewish faith that he had uh, is that kind of what you would say too. I know my aunt and my uncle are that way. Yeah, I, I would say that's true, and I'd I'd also say that over the years I've become um, basically non-religious. I don't I don't follow any of the things that I used to, even even the traditions uh, a little bit, but. I've become much more spiritual, I think, which um, spirituality and religion have the foundations of, of the same thing. They come from the same roots, but I just think of spiritualism as um, uh, 
having no rules. You know, you believe in a connectedness to, to a higher power, but you don't have to do this on a certain day and that on a certain day. And so it's a little bit uh, more liberal in its thinking. But basically, the spirituality and religion are all about the same thing, love and compassion, right, when you boil it down to Absolutely. In fact, I, I had a, a a therapist on who was who he he deals a lot with faith crisis uh, a, a while back, and and he talked about the stages of faith, and how how there's a stage three where a lot of re- very highly religious people are, where everything has to kind of fit into a box, and then something happens to put you into stage four where you start questioning those things. It's something that typically doesn't fit in the box, and stage five is where you get to a place where you know, you you kind of pick and choose those things that that serve you, and those and kind of go away from those that don't. So it's actually pretty. That, that I think is more of a spiritualism, like of what you're speaking. So yeah, you know what struck me um, <clears throat> twenty years ago when my my daughter died, I my wife and I were looking for some sort of support because, as you might expect, um, losing a child is is about the most horrible thing that can happen. And so I found a, a support group that was for bereaved parents and my wife and I drove an hour to this group and we walked in and I, some people that were deeply religious before their their child passed away, they were so angry. I mean, I wasn't prepared for that. You know, they were like, F God, you know, I mean, I, I was told that if I did this and I did that and, you know, I would be blessed and I would have good things happen. And, you know, I kept on my end of the bargain and God didn't. And I walked away with that just somewhat perplexed because I, religion can be a wonderful thing, but could also be, you know, divisive at times and, and lead to uh, various emotions and feelings and, and guilt and anger. So, yeah, and, that, and that's the thing, right, is that uh, that's, I think, what he what this stages of faith concept really talks about is that there's a you, everything fits in the box until something like the death of a child doesn't fit into it. And you sit there and you go, well, I was told if I do all these things, I'll be blessed. And now the worst thing that could have possibly happened happened. And you have you're forced to reevaluate. And it uh, sounds like you kind of had a almost like an inverse, because I, I know I've read a little bit about it, and the event that kind of piqued your interest in this was your, your daughter passing away. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, <clears throat> you know, that, I, I didn't think I'd ever recover from that. You know, I, I was, I really wanted to die. I, you know, I just, I was hoping that I would have a heart attack from the grief, because that, the, you know, dying was comforting to me, you know, to be out of my, my misery. Um, my wife, on the other hand, um, was a more spiritual person and, and, and she thought of things, you know, a little bit differently, although, you know, obviously she was still devastated, you know, herself, but um, that began a, a search because I needed to know if there was any credible evidence from uh, well-established um, researchers and scientists and medical doctors that our consciousness could survive after, after our body goes away. And I crisscrossed around the United States um, meeting with, with doctors that studied consciousness and scientists, and they, I took part in some research, and um, I needed that part. And I was amazed at the evidence that I was learning about. I was quite shocked that most of the mainstream was unaware you know, of the evidence, at least they were at that time. Um, so that's the piece that I needed. Uh, my wife didn't need that piece, although she respected and, and, and helped to foster the science. So we came at it from different approaches, as many people do. 
even within the same family unit. Sure. What was it when you were doing those that research that you found to be the most surprising evidence that people didn't know? Well, you know, I I never heard of of, of the I heard of the near death experience, but I didn't know what it meant. You know, to me, I'd see it in the movies, and somebody would have a brush claw, and they'd say, "Oh, I had a near death experience," but that's not you know what it is. What what I what was striking to me is in a near death experience, you have somebody that meets every definition that medical science has for death. I mean, they have no respiration, they have no brain waves, they have no heartbeat. You know, they they have no reflexes, um, you know, they're, uh, for all intents and purposes, they they meet the definition of death and they're dead. And yet they have these clear and lucid experiences. Now, when you think about that, how, how is that possible? I mean, you could say the explanation, well, it was a hallucination of a dying brain, but hallucinatory uh, uh, experiences, they're, they're not clear and lucid. They're fragmented and jumping all over the place, you know. And here people... Uh, describe clearer thinking than they ever had before. And, and um, it comes with certain commonalities. Some people describe uh, seeing a light. Some people describe seeing deceased loved ones. Some people, a lot of a high percentage of near-death experiences, they leave their body and they can describe their, you know, being hovering above their body and describe everything that went on in the in the operating room if they're in a, in a hospital setting um including the movements of the staff and conversations which shouldn't be possible you know if they're dead sure. um, to me um that was very compelling form of evidence that something survives i mean it didn't necessarily convince me at the time that there, that there was an afterlife but you know combined with everything else i learned I and mean, that was probably the first thing that i couldn't make sense of, you know, in my head. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned some of the research and then you talked about, well, a skeptic might say this is a hallucination of a dying brain and things. But I, I have read some things that suggest like some of the the commonalities that you talk about in near-death experiences, which we'll get into. I'm really interested in that can kind of be mimicked through, you know, like ketamine or or LSD DMT, you hear some people hearing things. Is there is there any commonalities in those things that you've seen in your research? Well, I mean, the, the common uh, uh, skeptical arguments have been, you know, debunked, like, um, uh, you know, oxygen deprivation, you know, uh, but yet they've done studies and, and people have near-death experiences when they're clearly uh, not deprived of oxygen at all because um, they're immediately uh, given oxygen, you know, when they're um, after an event happens. And uh, listen, there's a famous case of, of a woman who was in a hospital um, and she was having a procedure where she had all of the, the blood drained out of her body. That was the only way that they, they could do the surgery. And she was about as dead as you can get. And yet when later she was, she made it through and she was resuscitated she was talking to a nurse in the hospital and she said, if you, if you went up, get somebody to go up on the eighth floor because sitting on a ledge are two sneakers. And she, she described the color of the sneakers, how they were placed on the ledge and how one shoelace was overlapping another. And the nurse, you know, she just thought the woman was rambling, but she said, ah, for the heck of it, let me go up. She went up to the eighth floor 
and she looked out the window in, in uh, the side that the woman was talking about, and there on the ledge were those two sneakers, and they were, you know, exactly the way that the woman describes it. So, so when you look at that, you say, okay, well, if you can eliminate the possibility that this is a made-up story, and, and it was investigated and it was found to be true, the only explanation is that the woman's consciousness, and when I say consciousness, you can interchange the word mind or soul, um, left the body and went elsewhere. Consciousness could be in many places at the same time. Um, so, the, you know, it's, it's hard to, to dispute, you know, evidence like that because it's in a, in a controlled setting um, where uh, it's not possible under, under physical means, by physical means, at least the way we know it. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, a couple of things that come out of that. So, so as far as though, I'm, I've always, I've been interested just in hearing some of these things about, like I said, they've, there's been some evidence or, or some suggestion rather from some scientists that the same type of consciousness things or the things, at least with that near death experiences can be mimicked through, through use of ketamine, L, uh, LSD or DMT. Uh, you're, you're not familiar with any of that research or anything that's. Yeah, I, I am. Um, you know, and DMT is fascinating. Um, yeah. It's another thing that struck me. I, I interviewed once uh, Rick Strassman, who's an MD. He wrote a book called The DMT Molecule. Yeah. And what I got out of that interview was I was scratching my head because I learned uh, from Dr. Strassman that, is that humans, all humans, you know, have this hallucinogenic substance in their brains called um, DMT. And but it's not only humans, it's in all plant species and animal species and so forth. So, I, you know, I started thinking like, what if you believe that this universe is, is created as a design and everything, you know, working together, everything seems to have a function in the human body and interaction among species. What is the purpose of having such a substance in your, um, in your brain? You know, maybe, <clears throat> That's a possible explanation of, of how we connect to these non-physical realms. Yeah. Um, you know, you, uh, maybe that gets released, you know, at the time of death. Sure. Fascinating. But as you mentioned, that there has been some suggestion that you can mimic these, these things with ketamine or um, there's a surgeon that stimulated different areas of the brain. And you can get... Uh, it can mimic one or two of the of the commonly reported things in an NDE, but people don't report having conversations with deceased loved ones. They don't describe um, the, these heightened sensory experiences, you know, or descriptions, um, mm -hmm. uh, being imbued with with um, tremendous amounts of knowledge, um, not wanting to come back, you know, uh, and so forth. So. Um, I think that, um, you know, and by now, I mean, there are tens of thousands and upon thousands of, of near-death experience reports from all over the world. What's interesting is that, you know, it's still, you have this pure experience, but then you're faced with the task of trying to put the ineffable into words. So, right. you know, somebody um, in a, a different country, <coughs> excuse me, might describe seeing Jesus, or somebody might describe seeing Muhammad. You know, it's it depends on their, uh, you know, their religious and cultural influences. But it, they may be seeing the divine, but when they have to put it into words, 
everybody's going to have a different description. But that yeah. was actually that was actually sorry to interrupt you. That was actually something I was really interested in talking about. Was it sounds like what you're saying is that that culture or religious background does have a bearing on the type of experience someone has. Yeah, well, not the pure experience itself, but in the description of it, the way mm. you're interpreting it. Same thing happens in mediumship. You know, I could put two qualified mediums next to each other, or three or four, and they could all appear to be receiving the same information. But the way that they translate it and communicate it may be completely different. So you'll say, well, that medium's wrong and that medium's right. So maybe the medium is getting the information correctly, but not able to put it in a frame of reference that you can understand. Mm -hmm. So what is it that you look for? Like if you're, if you're researching um, a near-death experience, what is it that you are looking for to consider whether what they are experiencing was a true near-death experience? Well, <coughs> excuse me. Well, first of all, um, the researcher has to have access to the patient pretty quick after they get resuscitated. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. And that's why most of these reports come from hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, because you don't want to have um, the the accounts you know diluted or or um, influenced by outside sources, um, and then you, it, basically the researcher sits down um, with the patient and asks if anything um, if they saw anything or experienced everything in the time that they were um, unconscious, and then oftentimes uh, the patient will then describe these things that we're talking about. Well, I, I went through a tunnel. I, I saw a light. I was enveloped by love. I saw my, my, my deceased mom and my dad. Um, I experienced colors that I never saw before. I was floating above my, my body. Um, I was able to um, have such clear thinking that it was they described the experience as being realer than real. You know, it was just like hypersensitive to everything and getting downloads of information, much of which they, they still recall. Um, mm. and, and then the, and the descriptions, the, the experience, it's not like a dream where you wake up and you forget about it. Many, uh, a, a huge percentage of near death experiences when they get, when they come back, change their lives completely, mm. you know, because, Lots of times that material things mean nothing to them anymore, you know, whereas it was dominant in their lives because it's, they realize there's a greater reality. Um, so they, they change their style of living. They also um, have no more fear of death. They might have had a tremendous fear, but now that fear is gone because they know they're going to, you know, a place that they, they see is, is much better than the place that they came from. And a lot of times when they, I mean, these people are really angry when they come back, especially if they come back to a body that's racked with pain. You know, I sure. Mean, it, the, you know, I was I was good where I was. I don't want to come back. Even even afterwards, like I mean, if you talk to someone six months a year later, they're still kind of bummed that they're not there. Yeah, you talk to some of the people I've talked to. It's been forty years, and they're still bummed that they weren't that 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 that. that, that they're back here, you know, like, why didn't they let me in? Why did I, why was I told I had to stay? And that gets into other explanations. Why do people come back? A lot of people come back because they say that other entities told them that it's not their time. 
that they have more work to do on this earth plane. And, um, but certain things are, are, are tough to reconcile. You know, my, my wife passed away two years ago, suffering from pancreatic cancer and she was unbelievable suffering at the end, you know, Mm -hmm. and she even said to me, you know, um, about a week before she passed, she said, there's a line. And I said, what do you mean there's a line? There's a line of people waiting to get in. She said, no, there's a line and they won't let me cross the line. And she was angry. You know, she said, I'm dying. I'm ready to go and they won't let me. So, you know, in, in my mind, even with everything that I've learned over the years, it's hard to, what, what is, after a certain point, what is the purpose of suffering? Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, a lot, so a lot of my friends will say, well, because, you still have lessons to learn. She taught me all the lessons I needed to learn. You know, I don't see any any purpose, um, you know, in, in watching people suffer. Yeah. You know, when I was <clears throat> years ago with Dr. Kevorkian, yeah. you know, when, when, he, when he was popular, I was kind of aghast, you know, how dare him, you know, by God. Now I think of him as a hero. You know, you reach a certain sure. point where there's you know it's time to go you know there's yeah you're suffering so a couple of things there well it's interesting what you brought up um first i i wonder sometimes you know i'm i'm religious and so i i tend to take this information and filter it through that religious bias right um and uh for example my grandmother when i was younger i was i was i think i was 13 she had an aneurysm and uh it 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 changed her life completely. She never recovered from it. Uh, she she was basically wheelchair bound for the rest of her life, and she probably lived that way for another three years. And that was a question in our family quite often: was uh, why she had to go through all that. But what I found really interesting about that is before that, she did everything for my grandfather. I mean, everything. My grandfather was a great provider. He was a great, you know, he did everything outside. He was a mechanic and all that. But as far as cooking, cleaning, doing all those things. He just never did any of it. But that three years, I mean, she took care of him hand and foot, really. Um, that three years, that that relationship shifted and it was his turn to serve her. And, you know, one of the things that was suggested by my parents was she needed to be there so that that way he could learn to take care of himself because he lived another five, six years on his own before she right. passed. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's an interesting explanation that sometimes maybe some people's suffering is not necessarily there for their suffering for they need to learn they need to learn something but maybe we need maybe we need to learn something yeah i mean it's a perfectly plausible you know explanation i mean we went to, in my wife's family both my wife's parents were holocaust survivors you know and, oh wow and, and on each side um, all of their entire families were wiped out um and yet um part of me says well wait a second how could you remain religious after watching you know, yeah. six million people died, but they were. Their faith became even stronger, you know. Um, yeah. So you can go in, in either direction. Your Both of your parents were Holocaust survivors? Both my wife's parents were Holocaust Oh, your wife's parents. Did they have the tattoo and everything from, like, Auschwitz? Um, they they weren't in Auschwitz. They didn't have the, uh, you know, the the, the numbers, you know, okay. in, the, in the camps that they were in. Oh, wow. It's kind of, an inter- kind of an interesting... Talk, story. talk, talk they, about a way to sorry to interrupt, but talk about yeah. a way to grow up. Could you imagine your wife growing up with two parents that went through one of the most horrific events in the history of humankind? But anyhow, 
Yeah, and I think it affected my wife greatly because um, you know she was a fighter her whole life, you know, and she fought against injustice wherever it was. Sure. Um, and um, and and you know because of that, but it's interesting, you know, what, what you say because um, my wife's parents would never talk to their own children about the Holocaust. They wanted to kind of they didn't want to relive it, and they, and they wanted to protect their in their mind they were protecting their kids from it. But I was the son-in-law, you know, and I was close with them. So they opened up to me about it. <laughs> so there were a lot of stories that I heard that they had never heard before, you know. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Question question going back to the near-death experiences. Um, you mentioned that they that people report kind of downloading just hordes of information that they still remember. Is there a commonality of the of the information that they're receiving? Not that, not that anything that's really apparent. It's just all sorts of information um, about subjects that they had no knowledge of before, but now they they come back and they're well versed in it. Some people come back speaking languages that they never spoke before. Um, some people report um, having these intuitive abilities that they didn't have before. Mm. So they they <clears throat> come back and hear people's thoughts or, or um, you know, uh, even, you know, some are able to communicate with discarnate entities. It doesn't happen in a huge percentage, but some people do. It's just wow. something that we've noticed over the years. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned um, that a lot of, uh, one of the commonalities in near-death experience is the appearance of dead family members. Um, and it seems to be a common role. Um, so what does that suggest to you about family connections? The real interesting thing are, you know, the deathbed visions that people have. And that's, you know, it happens in that window between actual physical death and about a week or two before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, I mean, you talk to people that work in hospice or doctors or nurses and that's how they know when, when a person's death is imminent because they are greeted by their deceased loved ones. Um, and they know it's because the patients um, reach out their hands, you know, to embrace, you know, their loved one, which very often is their mom uh, or, you know, other close loved one. Um, obviously, most of the time that if you're witnessing this, you don't know who they're seeing. But they're, it's clear that they're talking to somebody and when a big smile comes on their face. And, you know, I believe that we all have assistance, you know, uh, that escorts to the, to the next world. Um, and, um, and that's why people have, I, I think that everybody has, a, a, you know, these, these uh, deathbed ex experiences, except that they may be physically or, or mentally impaired at that point and they can't express it to anybody else but they occur nonetheless and so i believe that when we we do cross over uh it's not only the person that escorted us to the other side but other loved ones that have gone before us you know sure it's yeah. just interesting because you know we we especially in today's political climate there's some suggestion that the family connection is a cultural thing but it, it seems to me, you know, and of course, this is me filtering through my own religious bias, being a, being a, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I believe the family, we, we believe the family, family um, connections last for eternity. 
um, it would suggest in some way that the family connections are not just some sort of cultural construct that, that these actually survive, survive death. Yeah. And it, it, that's pretty much in agreement with what we think. I said, you know, love is actually a conduit by which we re we remain connected across mm. dimensions. Um, yeah. You know, the stronger the love, the stronger the bond, the clearer the connect the connections. Um, you know, there are many uh, progressive thinking mental health professionals that instead of counseling their patients to disengage and get on with their life, um, they they counsel them to uh, continue the bond that you have with your loved one, obviously in another form. I mean, you can't hug them physically, but you're still continuing that relationship. I mean, there's nothing wrong with talking to them and, 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 and trying to pick up information or being influenced by them. And people who are able to do this seem to do better in their grief than those that, that can't. Mm -hmm. So what you said about religion, um, specifically the religion that, that you follow is that makes perfect sense to me. You know, it is more than a cultural phenomenon. It's, it, it's, it's the actual, you know, love and compassion. And, you know, and um, the other thing that religion, most religions uh, teach is that um, the more love and compassion uh, and empathy that you show while you're in the physical, um, the better you'll be in the next world. Now, I don't personally believe in like a heaven and a hell, but I believe that there are that you go with like-minded people. So, you know, I mean, somebody, I mean, I would think that Hitler is going to go to a different place than I'm going to go to. He's going to be with other Hitlers and that can't be too com comfortable for him. But I do believe that, it, you know, life is a continuum and there's progression on the other side. So just because he was, a, you know, a, a sadistic, you know, person, in the physical life, that's only one little part of his soul, you know, and, and that it will progress. And eventually over time, you know, he'll wind up where everybody else, you know, winds up. But it, it's certainly um, an incentive to, to live your life differently. Cause sure. you know, I mean, I'd want to be with, you know, people that I enjoy being with on the other side. Sure. It's interesting. You know, it's funny that you bring, you bring this up because what you're saying is is very is going to definitely appeal to members of my faith because that's exactly what we believe. Like you 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 saying things like, you may be saying this just to indulge me. Maybe you know this about my religion, but but uh, we believe the same thing that that people go and you know in some form or another people go to places with other like-minded people. There are different levels of what would be traditionally called of of, of a heaven and that that uh, there is progression within that, uh, that, that this life is a, is just a, almost like a stop in the road of the eternities and that it, it goes beyond that. But um, uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, we hear a lot about near-death experiences of things like, well, there's two questions I have for you. One, you know, we hear a lot about near-death experiences and these commonalities of have, it sounds like heaven, right? I mean, going yeah. through all, seeing your loved one, seeing deity, you know, love, getting all this information, ultra sensory. Um, have you heard of any near-death experiences where someone experiences going to what sounds like hell? Yeah. Um, 
it, it happens and probably 10 to 15% of experiences are negative in that way. And again, I think that is a product of somebody's, you know, um, societal and cultural and, and religious views. I mean, if, if, if I was constantly taught during my life that I'm going to go to hell if I sinned, and I know that I, I did a lot of sinning in my life, um, that may filter my whole experience because that's how I'm going to interpret everything. I don't know that that's you know the way it works, but that's just a <coughs> educated guess. But yeah, the vast majority are heaven-like experiences, but there's a small percentage that, are, as you described, some people describe it as a, they call it a, a hellish NDE, you know, and that obviously can't be uh, comfortable. You know, um, the, the biggest component of, the, of a, a, a near-death experience that we didn't talk about is the life review you've probably heard about. And that pe people describe <clears throat> their whole life, everything that happened flashing before their eyes, you know? I mean, it seems like it's instantaneous. And while they're watching all these life events, they get that warm, loving feeling um, based upon everything that they good that they did good um, to others, you know, and helped others. Um, but at the same time, um, they get the um, the bad things, whether consciously or unconsciously, affected people in a negative way. Um, and that um, is the biggest incentive. <laughs> I mean, who wants to go through to, to a, a you know, a near-death experience uh, where you have this life review where you're feeling all that pain you inflicted to others, you know? So sure. um, it really is, um, it's quite common, and, you know, a large percentage of near-death near -death experiences have that review. Wow. Now, when um, I, I saw a blog post that you posted about specifically judgment and you had suggested in the article, I think you wrote it, it was on your website, but yeah. you had suggested that, yeah, that, that there was some level of judgment, but that the judgment was not necessarily you're brought in front of a tribunal that's, that's judging everything you've ever done, but your judgment kind of comes from yourself. Yeah, I, and that's what I believe. I believe that everything in this life and the next life and, and, and in this vast continuum is based on self-judgment. I don't think that we're told do this or do that or go here or go there. We go where we belong, you know, um, and, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because like, like everybody else, I'm always trying to make sense of, you know, finding the, the purpose in this physical world and why b bad things happen to good people, you know, and so forth. And my working hypothesis, which is not shared by much of the spiritual community is that God did not, you know, he created this, this, this physical world and gave us all the tools and we, and, and, and imparted the knowledge of what we're supposed to be doing with those, those tools and does, and then make of it what you will. <clears throat> so I believe that much of what happens in this physical world is, is random, hmm. but, and it sounds counterintuitive, but it's randomness by design. 
the randomness was the way this physical world was designed. Now, after we pass from this physical world to the next world, that's when um, God or the universe takes over and, 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 and moves us along based upon this, what we learned, how we treated others, um, and, and so forth. So most people, especially if you talk to the medium community, every medium I know says that there are no such thing as coincidences. Uh, everything you know happens for a reason mm -hmm. and most people that i know share that belief uh, you know I, I don't i mean some things i think are clearly synchronistic um and um you know where two seemingly unrelated events come together to form meaning there's some sort of organizing principle that takes place but i don't think you know i, I do believe that sure some things just happen randomly yeah or or maybe they don't necessarily happen randomly but it's not like god is intending them to happen i mean we all have a, a level of uh what, what we call in our religious community free agency free will and right. and someone's free will to do bad things certainly going to have an effect on someone else if the bad thing is being done to them and that's not necessarily a god thing it's a human thing you know? yeah i agree um you know we're all <clears throat> It's hard to see the bigger picture when we're immersed in this physical world. I, I once read a book, um, and there were stories written by the world's greatest shamans, you know, and I read one story that always stuck with me. He said, this physical life is like being at a football game and having ground-level seats. You're sitting there, and you hear the grunts, and you see the violence and the chaos, but it's not until you move to the very top row of the stadium that you see all the patterns you know so maybe we can't see uh, while we're immersed in all this chaos that there really is some sort of of a design or pattern but eventually that top row is when we move to the next world we'll see the reason for all this stuff yeah Go going backwards how old was your daughter when she passed away she was 15. Oh, wow and was that a car accident that happened or it was, and, and one of the reasons that I got into this work, so to speak, was that, my, you know, my wife, um, on the morning of September 1st, 2002, um, she uh, got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and she was shaking, and I said, what's the matter? And she wouldn't even talk to me. She was just ashen white and shaking. I said, what's the matter? Then she said, something horrible is going to happen today. And I said, well, what does that mean? You know, what, you know, she said, I can't tell you exactly, but our lives are going to be changed forever today. So I, my wife was an, uh, an intuitive person and, and there were things that had happened in our lives together where she had these kind of, you know, visions or whatever you want to call them. And they always turned out to, they played out exactly the way she said, but they were all good things. So even though I didn't believe in this stuff, logic told me if she was right then, she could be right now. And to make sure. a long story short, I watched over my three kids throughout the day. One was already back at college. I was taking my oldest to college the next day. And my youngest one, uh, Bailey, I drove her to a part-time job. And then at night, I let my guard, my, my guard down and I figured, okay, this just faded from my awareness. It was nothing. And we took, two, we were at a restaurant together. We took two cars home. 
and my son and daughter were involved in, a, in an accident. We passed them on the way home, and my daughter didn't survive her injuries, and my son was airlifted to another hospital with very severe injuries. So I was in, you know, as you would expect, I was in shock for a month or more. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know whether I was going to lose two kids or one. And when it became clear that my son was going to recover, I said, wait a second. I remembered that morning of the accident. I said, well, how did my wife, Fran, how, how did Fran know? She knew because I saw her shaking. She told me something was going to happen. So I became obsessed with trying to find out how she knew. And I wanted to know, was she getting a message? You know, um, and if was that message from somebody that was deceased, was she catching a glimpse of the future, you know, precognition, you know, and I, and that's what I, I needed to know. <laughs> I still don't have an answer. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, is that a form of mediumship then? It could be if it's mediumship, if somebody that's deceased was sending her that message. Mm. <laughs> Some people just are able to, catch a glimpse of the future. That's not mediumship. That's just an ability. Yeah, perhaps you can explain what a medium is. Sure, a medium, um, quite simply, is somebody that claims to be able to communicate with the dead, somebody that we call a discarnate entity. Mm -hmm. And um, there are, uh, it depends on the information that you get. And I when in when I wrote the book, The Medium Explosion, I, I didn't make a lot of friends in the mediumship community because I said, you know, based upon my work over the past, you know, 15 or so years and everything else that I've read and, and watching, you know, a thousand medium readings, I said 90% of the mediums in practice today cannot do what they claim, you know, so and not saying that 90% that are frauds, most of them are not frauds, they just have a little bit, bit of intuitive ability, as do we all. I mean, you have some, I have some, you know, just in varying degrees. Um, but that doesn't mean they should be out charging money and counseling people in deep grief. Right. So then, you know, I, after meeting with scientists that studied mediumship in, in research settings at universities, um, they helped me design, you know, my own uh certification evaluation process and we it's like a seven or eight step process um and it's extremely unlikely that anybody could could pass uh, without having really strong ability and and our own data in all those years was that we only have you know i think it's 12 percent of the mediums that we evaluated a pass so your foundation is the one that certifies these and is this is your certification, is it considered like, you know, the premium certification within the medium community? I mean, well, I, I mean, I, I think it is. Look, you know, there's a lot of organizations out there. It's like, you know, becoming their processes like, like mail order reverence, you know, send me 50 bucks and I'll, you know, I'll give you a, a reverence certificate. But um, Alice is really, you know, comprehensive. I think that we improved upon the some of the research that even the universities were doing because ours is geared to specificity of information. So if, if you're the, if you're the, the um, medium, let's say, and um, I'm the sitter and you say, Bob, uh, 
do you have a great grandmother in spirit? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, she'd be 130. So you good. We all do, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but if she said to me, Bob, I have your great grandmother, Rebecca here and Rebecca, um, made, you know, the uh, unbelievable Hungarian goulash and was known for this or that p specific pieces of evidence. I think you, you would agree that that should give it, be given more weight in the scoring than just, I'd have to mark the other thing true because I have a, a dead grand, great grandmother, but it's a big difference. So we look for non-general statements. You know? Sure. Now you, now you mentioned you called someone <laughs> Or is that the person who's sitting for the reading with the medium? Is that what a sitter is? Yes, exactly. I should have mentioned that. So, you know, in a mediumship reading, you have three, at least three parties involved. The person in the spirit world, we call it the discarnate, the medium, his or herself that's doing the reading, and the sitter, the person that, that's receiving the information, which is reportedly being communicated from the discarnate through the medium, to the sitter. So the medium will tell you that they're only a channel that, you know, that mm -hmm. just the information is passing through them. Mm -hmm. So, so walk me through kind of some of the, uh, some of the things that someone needs to do to become certified. Is it like, I, I just, for some reason it popped in my head. I'm, I'm thinking of that, <laughs> that uh, scene in Ghostbusters where he's shocking someone while he's looking at the, you know, the flashcard, like it, 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 I'm sure it's nothing like that. I don't know why that popped in, but what do you tell me, tell me what you do when you're certifying somebody? Well, uh, you know, it's, we, we never, you know, I have to protect the integrity of the program. So of the process, so I, we don't solicit any mediums. Ah, okay. So they, they go on our website they send an email expressing interest in the program. <clears throat> I then ask them, I send them a series of five simple questions designed to look for any red flags just to see what their answers are. We review those when they come in. If they look okay, we'll send them an eight-page extensive application. Um, for every, I'd say for every 10 applications we send out, you know, maybe one or two get returned because when they see this is serious stuff and it's not a matter of just send no money changes hands, you know, so when they see it's, it's, it's not a simple process, they don't even bother. But when they return that it gets, the application gets reviewed by a committee. The committee decides whether they should go forward with this applicant um, if it's decided that they should, then a, um, a one-hour interview is arranged, you know, with the medium. And if that looks good, they're invited to participate in a actual certification session. You know, in the session, <clears throat> they do five separate readings for for sitters that we train extensively. Mm -hmm. So the sitters know about mediumship. They know how to score the information. They know about general information versus specific information. And then we then we have five different scoring methods, and it's based on a composite. And they have to meet the minimum levels in each one of the five things. So it's difficult. And you know what? A lot of the mediums, um, I understand, even good mediums get flustered by the process because they've never been put in a situation like that before. I had one medium a couple of months ago that she actually was having a, a panic attack during the first reading. I, I had, I'm not a trained therapist. I had, I had to try to Calm her talk down. her down, you know, while she's doing this, you know, and reassuring her. So it's, it, so for that reason, 
if a medium doesn't gain certification, we allow them to come back at another time to to redo it when they might be better prepared. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, but if someone has the, you know, the Forever Family Foundation certification, in your mind, that gives them more credence that they actually are truly a medium. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, and listen, we've been doing it since 2005. I think we have 25 mediums that we've certified over those 17 years. Wow, that's, it. that's it. So, um, and even the best mediums in the world, you know, they're 85 to 90%, you know, accurate. So, I mean, you know, mediums are still going to miss things and it's not, it's never a guarantee. Um, but what we found over the years is that the mediums we've certified are more consistent. They very rarely don't connect. Um, and they, and, and the, the information is consistently at a high level. So when someone's going through a mediumship, um, like uh, they're sitting for medium for, for this, uh, I don't know what you would call the session. Yeah. Um, what, what happens when they connect? Is it different for each one? Is each yeah. medium have a different process or? Yeah, well, each medium connects in different ways. You know, some mediums receive information differently. Some <coughs> hear voices, some just hear thoughts. Some people actually see the discarnate. Um, some people, you know, it's more of a sense of presence and the information is communicated, you know, telepathically. Um, but, and sometimes the information doesn't flow right away. It's like building on it, you know, and then, it's important for the sitter to acknowledge and yes or no type answers. Yes, I understand. No, I don't. So the medium knows if they're on the right track. Um, but, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll sit there in the medium and the whole session is pretty much not getting anything. No, um, yeah. You know, and it's, it happens It happens more often than you think with the mediums are coming, the, coming to us. So even though they... The application is good and the interview is good. Then they go through the session and I can't believe that they're even practicing as a medium. Um, so <coughs> I can't explain it, but. Yeah. Can you, do you have uh, an experience? One of the questions that was asked was what was, we'll kind of limit it to mediumship, but so what's your most scariest experience? Have you ever had a scary experience with a medium? Something that really tripped you out? Not really scary. Um, you know, I was always curious. It dawned on me after doing this for a number of years is that why does I never hear a medium bring through negative information? I mean, clearly there's, there's, there's good and there's evil in this world, you know, and there's positive and negative. And their answer is that they, um, before a reading, they'll talk to their guides or to the universe or to the God, and they'll say, you know, please only give me, you know, uh, light and not dark, you know, and then and they, and they don't get bit. Now, some mediums do get um, dark uh, kind of information, but uh, they, they're professional enough to not to convey that to the sitter. Um, sure. So they don't, get, don't give them that. I mean, my first experience with a medium and Mike, maybe that 
might be more in line with the specific question. I didn't believe in mediums when I went. My, it was before we started the foundation. My wife dragged me to see this fairly well-known medium. And we were in a, a dark hotel room with 10, 10 other people. And the medium all of a sudden started talking. And this, uh, she was a female. She was talking in this deep uh, male voice. It was kind of scary to me. <laughs> you know, I was like, whoa, like, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. You know, some mediums actually, they channel you know, with it, where their explanation is that the 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 discarnate entity takes a, over their body and talks through the medium's vocal cords. I mean, I've experienced that before. That was a little unsettling. Except I walked away from that. The medium gave me three pieces of information, which were so specific um, that it was impossible, you know, for them to know. Nobody in the world knew except my wife. So I drove, I remember driving home that night, scratching my head and trying to figure out the trick, you know, you know, and I couldn't come up with anything. And so that kind of, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I was convinced at that point, but it opened the door to further exploration. Interesting. Um, another question that was asked was, um, do you feel it would be difficult for a loved one who has passed on to communicate with someone they had a message for without the service of a medium? No, you know, what we, at all our, you know, we have these grief retreats that we hold throughout the year. And, the, and even though we have four certified mediums there, we tell everybody that they don't need a medium, that, your loved one can communicate with you directly. Very often it's through dream visitations. You know, it's mm. the theory is that when your channel mind is set aside in that REM stage of sleep, it prevents a, it presents a, a clear channel for, you know, thoughts to come through. Mm. Uh, some people describe all sorts of, 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 you know, visions and apparitions and so forth. So what was interesting is I once did a survey and I asked people, Given the choice, would you rather receive a communication from your loved one directly to you or through the services of a medium? And when I asked that question, I, I was positive that the that the majority would say directly, because I wouldn't want to, that's what I would say. And it was the opposite. Most people said through a, through a medium. So I probed into that a little bit and I found out the two reasons. One, people said that <coughs> If their loved one was communicating with them directly, they wouldn't trust that they weren't making it up. You know, mm -hmm. just a product mm -hmm. of their own imagination. And the other <clears throat> was fear. Mm. People are taught to fear things that we can't perceive with our known physical senses. Mm. That that had a big effect on me because I realized that people fear people fear telepathy in <clears throat> ESP because in their mind it's spooky because of the media and so forth. So. Um, it's interesting, but very few times during a mediumship reading, is there anything at all that's fearful? Sure. You know, it's funny, um, you bring that up my mind was caught up to this idea. You say fear can, can affect the ability to receive communication, or at least that's what I think you said. Um, you know, I, I, I've heard this phrase for many religious people that faith and fear cannot exist in the same place at the same time. So if you have... If you have faith that you, you know, if you're afraid 
that you're not going to get a a, re, a response from someone in the who's passed on uh that would certainly eliminate any ability for you to have the faith that you could receive it is there a level of faith required do you think uh for mediums or the people receiving the messages in order to receive them no you know because i've seen people that you know that the sitters they walk into a medium reading and their arms are crossed and they're total skeptics Mm -hmm. And they and those are the ones that usually get the most profound readings. You know, so it's, not, it's not. I mean, you have to. There's a difference between being a closed-minded skeptic and an open-minded skeptic. I'm still an open-minded skeptic. I, I go where the evidence is. You know, I mean, and, sure. and, and I first I rule out physical ex- explanations in everything, and then I could truly believe in it. A closed-minded skeptic, you can give them all the evidence that you know, and they, they'll just they just refuse to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I think that um, it's not necessary for you to, you know, it happens when sitters are, are religious or non-religious, you know, when they're old or young, you know, um, in every different ethnicity, nothing seems to matter. It's just that your loved one's desire to get through you, to get through to you, to let you know that they still survive because they know that'll help you in your grief. Hmm. So what would you say would be, this is another listener question, what would be the best way to connect with dead people you know and this person wanted to make sure i knew that they were asking for a friend so <laughs> all right well yeah i mean i wish i had an easy answer uh, a lot of i mean you can't force these things these things to happen a lot of people will say that um getting into any state of altered consciousness whether it be through meditation or music or art or nature um you know, when you're, you're putting that, that's, that, that monkey mind to rest and, you, you know, um, is helpful. Uh, say that setting an intention is important. So there's nothing wrong with you um, either out loud or internally sending the thought out to your loved one that they should come through, you know. But um, these things, um, these things um, don't happen on demand. And sometimes, you know, I'll talk to people and, they, you know, it's been, a year and they never got a dream visitation from their loved one. And I'll see them a year later and all of a sudden it came and it was profound to them and, and it did a lot for them. So um, I wish there was an easy way to um, an easy answer to that, but there's not. Mm. Um, Is there anything that you think someone could do? Like you mentioned, you know, someone was waiting for a dream, uh, a dream uh, visitation, but never received one. Is there anything that you view that you could do to kind of solicit this type of stuff for yourself, other than maybe just going to a medium? No, it's it's well, it, you know, still goes back to setting that intention. You know, and when I say setting an intention, I don't mean you know saying oh you got to come through, you got to come through, kind of go. You can't make it happen. Like you set the intention and you release it into the atmosphere, into, into the universe, um, and some way it'll percolate and find its way to your loved one. So how much of that, though, do you think is actually percolating to a loved one who's passed on versus, I mean, there have been times where I'm, you know, thinking about something during the day and I fall asleep and then it shows up in my dreams or I watch a scary movie and then I have a nightmare. I mean, yeah, you know, is that is that setting an attention? Do you think that might be creating some sort of like a you believe it's a dream visitation, but it's just in your own head, you're dreaming of your loved one? Yeah, I mean. 
you know, 99% of the dreams I have are, are what I call regular dreams. They're just a rehashing of a TV show I watched or an event in my life. Uh, um, and, and usually they make no sense and I forget them right after mm. I wake up. <clears throat> On the other hand, in a dream visitation, um, it's very tactile. You can you can talk to your loved ones. You can hug your loved one. Um, you could sometimes you could smell your, them, you know, and and it, it's as if they were right there in front of you. Um, and then you wake up instead of forgetting it, um, you remember it, similar to the near death experience that we were talking about. And you usually don't forget them. I would encourage anybody to have one of those, though, to to write them down. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, refer to them occasionally, especially those times when uh, you might feeling be feeling exceptionally sad or any type of non-physical experience. You know, because it's a good it's a good resource to pull pull yourself out of uh, your grief. Another question that was uh, was posed. So this uh, this friend of mine sent a message sharing that she had at times. Um, Several different times in her 20s and 30s, she had had a bunch of different people who were like, who I guess identified themselves as psychics, maybe mediums, who would come to her and say, you know, you, your, your sister needs to help you or, or you need your help or something of that nature. So is there evidence out there that you've seen that some people may be predisposed to like psychic or energy like that, like that a medium yeah. seek them out? Yeah, so I mean, there's a clear difference between a psychic and a medium. So psychic is receiving mind-to-mind -mind communication from two living sources, whereas in mediumship, you're receiving it's telepathic communication, but it's just that one person doesn't have a body. One person is in the spirit world, and some people are very gifted psychically, and they could tell you, um, you know, what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow. What color you just painted your room, but they have no ability to communicate with the dead. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a clear difference, you know, between the two. And mm -hmm. sometimes mediums, they call themselves mediums, but they're gifted psychically, but they have very little ability on, on the medium side. Mm -hmm. Are there, uh, another question that was asked, or are there protective spirits who follow people? Or, or are you aware? Well, you know, a lot of people. Um, claim that they have guardian angels, you know, um, or guides that are sort of in charge of their lives and do follow them around and protect them. So, I mean, I'm open to that. Um, many, uh, certainly most mediums will tell you that they have guides uh, who help them not only during readings, but um, in their personal lives. Mm. Um, so you've now been doing this for 20 years. Um, maybe perhaps talk about the experience if you can, um, how the experience when your daughter passed away is different than the experience when your wife passed away, considering what you know now, how that helped you. <coughs> well, they're they're equally devastating because you're 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 losing a part of your life. However, when my daughter passed away, I didn't believe in my life after death, and that made it extremely difficult for me to get my bearings. Um, and you know, when my wife passed away, obviously, you know, fast forward all those years, 
even with all the knowledge that I have about, you know, uh, life after death, I still, it was still utterly, you know, devastating to me, but um, I'm not, it's not that same profound sadness that dominate, dominated my life, you know, with my daughter, because now I know more, I believe she's in another place. I know she's in another place. Um, so in that respect, uh, um, sounds stupid to say better equipped, but, you know, better equipped to, to handle such a, a profound loss uh, where I wasn't equipped at all, you know, the first time. Mm. The other thing I, I mean, I, I might add is that, um, so in September, my my house was wiped out in, in the Hurricane Ian. Mm. And so, you know, I lost everything. And then, you know, I live on a, a barrier island. So, you know, everybody was in the same boat. Everybody, you know, kind of lost their houses in varying degrees. And, you know, listening to all the comments of all the people that are posting stuff, and it was like, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my friends were asking me, like, why are you not more upset? I mean, you just lost your house and, and everything in it. I suppose there's a, there's a profound difference to losing the grieving the loss of material things than to the loss of a loved one. You can't even compare the two. I don't have that same pit in my stomach that I had, you know, you know, with, 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 with the other, uh, with the other losses. So that, I mean, I grew from that because, you know, we, we put way too much value on, on, on things, you know, on physical things. And in the big picture, I mean, nothing. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up because that was, I've, I've learned a lot about myself recently, just through my own life events that have gone through. And, and one of the things that I talked about and I realized when I was a kid was that my parents still together, together to this day, they, they never gave up on each other, but there was a time where they were really struggling. Uh, particularly when I was, you know, middle school through high school, they really just had a, they, they had a rough go there. And, and I remember the, you know, a lot of what they were fighting over, you know, was uh, my dad had some demons that he was that he was working through. And then and then there was never seemed to be enough money. They just struggled a little bit financially. And so I remember growing up and thinking, well, if I did, if I don't do drugs and I and I have all the money, I'll be happy, you know. And right. and then I, I realized over the course of time, it was funny because I I found myself. And I don't think it's wrong to necessarily pursue uh, good financial, you know, having financial freedom. I've, I've done very well for myself financially, but I noticed that I would start doing things like I'd be like, I had a list of things. It's like, okay, if I have the big house, like then I'll be happy. And then I'd have the big house. I'm like, if I have the fancy car. yeah. And then it was like ridiculous stuff, right? Like if I have a pinball machine, you know, like a yeah. pinball machine and it's like, these things are like cool for a couple of months. And then next thing you know, they're just, they're just there. And I realized these things are fun. They're great to have, but they don't bring lasting happiness. What brings lasting happiness is experiences with your loved ones. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, perhaps you can share that now that you've, I mean, you've been spending your time, I'm guessing a significant amount of time now. Um, over the last two decades studying this stuff, perhaps you can tell me what, what it's taught you about life. Well, 
you know, I mean, I, besides the things we're, we're talking about and, 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 you know, love and compassion and, and not putting too much emphasis on material stuff, it's just we don't take the time to experience things. You know, I mean, we, we you know, we, I use the example, I mean, you watch people like my friends and they're constantly posting photos me standing next to the statue, me taking a picture of the sunrise, me doing this, me doing that. And then, and then they get so aggravated if they don't capture the per perfect shot. You know, how about just putting down the camera and, and just taking it in? You know, we, we, we need to put our, um, our brains aside once in a while and just experience things with our heart. Um, and, and, um, I think that's the biggest take-home message that I've learned over the years. I don't, I don't do the same. I used to plan everything. I don't plan anymore. You know, I don't expect things. We live under this illusion of permanence that everything is going to be permanent in our lives, which is pretty insane because, you know, we reside on this spinning orb that's going a thousand miles an hour suspended in space. I mean, what's, what's permanent about that? You know, um, but if you live your life with the knowledge that what's here today may not be here tomorrow, um, you'll live your life differently. You'll say things to your loved ones that you didn't say, you know, before, and you'll do things for other people that maybe you just kept putting off because, you know, living as if this, you know, was your last physical day can be valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I a hundred percent agree. I, I remember uh, a, a while back, uh, I took my two sons. I have four kids. They're two boys and two girls. I love them to death. 16, 14, 11, and nine. And they're just, they're so great. I love my kids um, more than anything, really. Um, but I took my two boys. We went back to Chicago. Uh, you know, big pro wrestling fans. And I set up this weekend where we went to this pro wrestling event. And then we went to Wrigley Field to see the Cubs play. And I remember sitting there watching the Cubs play with my two sons and just looking out and going, this is, this is what makes life worth living. Right. The simple things. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, that wasn't a simple thing. It was an expensive trip, but, <laughs> but like yeah. the thing is, is that, that, that I got more enjoyment out of that than I could, I think I could ever, ever buy, you know, those experiences that you, that, uh, you know, you, you get with your loved ones. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I reflect, you know, back on my life, I mean, it's, I, I don't remember the birthdays and the trips and the anniversaries, but it's the, you know, it's, it's like you say, you know, just driving in the car with your, with your, with your son or your daughter listening to music and, you know, the sheer joy of it, you know, of the moment, you know, and yeah. we have these little moments that we tend to dismiss instead of treasure them. Yeah. How does your knowledge now of the afterlife, it sounds to me like you, you say you're, a, you're kind of a skeptic, but it sounds like you've come to a, at least a faith, if not a knowledge that there is life after death. How does that shape you now? Well, the, the most obvious consequence of all that um, work is that I, I have, no fear. I mean, I lived most of my adult, adult life um, and having a tremendous fear of dying. It, it, it affected the way I lived. It, um, 
I just couldn't imagine being extinguished forever. I mean, what's the point? It's just a cruel joke. You know, you just live this life and, and then, you you know, you're gone, you, you expire. So, you know, believing that this, that this is just a little physical blip and we continue, um, I think it allows you to live your life more fully um, mm-hmm. instead of living in fear, just, you know, you can live in joy more. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so looking at looking at your book here, I'm actually looking at a copy of it. I picked up a copy of the medium explosion. And so, oh, that's getting all, it's all fuzzy because of my yeah. the medium explosion. And um, how long, how long has that been in print now? Um, it's been in print um, probably about two years now. Yeah. yeah. I just, I just finished up another book, but it's not ready to go out. But um yeah, I mean, if people want to learn more, um, as you went on our website, you know, foreverfamilyfoundation.org, I think that article that I wrote that you referred to was on our, my blog, uh, beyondthefivesenses.com. So. Yeah, and you also, I don't know if you still do it, but I know for a time you were doing uh, a radio show as well on your... Uh, yeah, we still do it every Thursday night, and we have every show since 2005 archived on our website, so... That's awesome. Yeah. And I also saw that your Family Forever Foundation, they're all volunteer, right? Yeah. You know, nobody in our organization has ever gotten paid. Um, And it's quite amazing because, you know, now we have 13,000 members in 76 countries and we do all these things and no money changes hands. So, I mean, we. That's amazing. And and in fact, uh, the, the proceeds from your book, The Medium Explosion, the, the proceeds go back to the foundation, right? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we don't charge for membership either. So we have to raise money somehow, to, you know, so we do the, you know, webinars and, 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 and raffles and retreats and various things to, and people who are fortunate, you know, send in donations. So um, I think if you're doing things for the right reason that the universe has a way of, of providing and keeping things going. It does. Perhaps um, as we're, we're coming to a close, I really appreciate your time. Perhaps you can, you can tell me what message that you, your work, your passion, really, what message you'd use with this research for those, perhaps those who are grieving. Well, you know, um, I would encourage people to just keep, reading everything they can and exploring and learning and discovering and being open to everything because we know it's a fact that if you could go if you could come to the to the place in in your mind where you believe that we go to another place um you will do better in your grief than those who don't believe and it makes sense i mean what else could give you any hope and comfort than than the belief that you love them still survives in another form. There have been a lot of peer-reviewed studies uh, that have been published that show that those who believe in an afterlife do better in the grief than those who don't. And that just makes perfect sense to me. So I would just encourage everybody to remain open um, and and just keep discovering and uh, see what happens. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And I have one last question. I know you've been, I also say you're, you're, I know you're fighting. Appreciate you. Appreciate you indulging me while you're fighting the, 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, last question I have, you know, um, we hope it's not too, you know, it's not uh, too soon, but one day you're going to pass. <laughs> there will be a funeral. And yeah. Someone traditionally gives a eulogy of some sort. What what would be the one thing that you would would hope would be said in your in your eulogy? It's just it's just simple. Um, he was honest. My my voice is going, but that's okay. He's um, he was honest. He cared, um, and he had compassion. That, that's that's about it. That's all I need. That's awesome. <laughs> That means a lot, you know, that's, that's great. Compassion and love. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Um, when your, when your next book comes out, uh, let's have you back. Let's talk about it. I'll pick it up and we'll, we'll review it and we'll, we'll talk about your, your next book. Is it on mediums or something different? <coughs> something different. Okay. Well, great. Involving the afterlife. Awesome. Well, great. Well, well, Mr. Ginsburg, Ginsburg, thanks again. This is the part where I'm supposed to tell people subscribe to the podcast, you know, and uh, and uh, look up uh, the the Forever Family Foundation, the Medium Explosion. Follow uh, Mr. Ginsburg. Uh, it's been a great it's been great to talk to you. Really appreciate thank it. You. My pleasure. Thank you.